This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What if there's no such thing? as an accident. I'm Marin Kogan, and I write for Vox about problems hidden in plain sight. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Right now, I'm at my desk in my home office in Washington, DC. Looking out my window, I can see a four-way intersection with stop signs on every corner. About a year ago, I started to notice something. The cars seemed to be going much faster, and they were running stop signs much more frequently than usual. Then I started reading about the deaths in my community. Four-year-old Zaire Joshua killed while crossing the street with his mom. Police say the boy was crossing the street outside of a marked crosswalk when the car hit him. But his mom, Shaquan Smith, says that wasn't the case. Armando Martinez-Ramos killed making deliveries on his bicycle for Uber Eats. Where Armando Martinez-Ramos was hit by that shuttle bus. And days later... Walden Adams and Rhonda Whitaker killed on a walk in the park. We've learned two pedestrians who were hit and killed over the weekend were people who worked tirelessly to better the lives of others. They were struck in Haines Five-year-old Allison Hart killed while riding her bike. Following a tragic case in the district where police say a van hit and killed a five-year-old little girl. It happened near 14th and Irving Streets Northeast. Police say the little girl was riding a bike or a cigarette. More than 31,000 people died in car crashes on America's roads in the first nine months of 2021. That's a 12% increase over the previous year. And it's the biggest increase during the first nine months of any year since the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration started tracking the numbers. The problem only seems to be getting worse. They need to do something about them speeding and put some type of cameras or speed bump so this don't happen to another child. These are innocent kids who are only four and three years old. Because something got to change. Something has to change. Please, the, the government, please do something about that. I'm, I'm, we begging you. We don't want so when you look at the number of people being killed on our streets, the word accident starts to feel really unsatisfying. The crash sent eight people to the hospital. D.C. police saying now two people have died. All indications are that this was truly accidental. There was no indications that this was intentional. It's like saying there's nothing to see here when clearly something larger is going on. In America, we hear and read about accidents every day. Car crashes, opioid overdoses, workplace injuries. Most of us just shrug our shoulders. After all, if it's an accident, there's nothing that could have been done to prevent it. Right? In the new book, There Are No Accidents, author Jesse Singer argues that basically all the things we consider to be accidents are in fact not accidents at all. In reality, they're the result of larger systemic forces shaped by corporations and governments that intersect to create vulnerabilities in our environment. Vulnerabilities that we don't all share equally. 
Today, I speak with Jesse Singer about what's going on when someone has an accident. I should note that we'll use the word accident here as a reference to its common usage, but Jesse has a major critique of the way we use this term. I don't like to use the word accident. I don't normally use the word accident. The word accident in itself is quite tricky. So by definition, it's a contradiction. It has two definitions. One is a random event, and the other is a harmful event. So at once, an accident is unpredictable, but with a predictable outcome. And so from that direct contradiction, we we get a lot wrong about what an accident is and what's important when we talk about accidents. And perhaps the number one thing that we get wrong about accidents is that we focus on the last person involved when things go wrong. And in that viewpoint, accidents seem random and we miss the layered causality that leads to accidental harm. We miss the stacked dangerous conditions that lead to people being killed and injured in accidents. Okay, so let me give you an example and I would love to hear how you interpret it. So let's say I go out, I leave my house, I'm texting, I'm having a busy day and I walk into the street and I get hit by a car. Certainly, I didn't mean to get hit by a car, right? I was distracted and I was texting, and I'm certain that the driver didn't mean to hit me. So tell me what that means, how you make sense of that uh, in the context of an accident. One way to look at that is that we focus in on the last person who made a mistake, right? In this case, let's say you looking at your phone. And in doing so, we ignore all of the dangerous conditions that surround us and that are in our control. because. I think we like to pretend that human behavior is in our control, but when it comes down to it, your urge to look at your phone, which is a very sexy, you know, distracting toy, is not really something that is in our control. But we can control visibility at crosswalks in your neighborhood. We can control how fast drivers are moving through neighborhoods where people might be crossing the street while looking at their phone. We can also install technology in our vehicles, such as automatic emergency pedestrian braking systems that literally prevent the harm from happening, even if both you and a driver make these mistakes of being distracted, of not looking out for pedestrians. But because we focus on the you in that example, on the distracted pedestrian, we miss this wealth of opportunity to control our built environment in ways that make us safer. What's the problem with the term accident? I mean, I think there's a lot of problems with it. One thing that we talk about is that accidents are supposed to be random, right? And unpredictable. But if that were true, then accidental death would be randomly distributed across the country, but it's not. And so accident tells us that this is random, except when we look at the data, we see that Black and Indigenous people and people living in poverty die by accident most often. And so when we look at those racial and economic differences in accidental death, we see that this is especially true for accidents where policy and infrastructure make a difference between life and death. So the safety of our homes, of our roads, of our workplaces. And so what we see is that policy decisions and an unregulated corporate environment lead to risk unequally distributed across the U.S. Yet we're told to think of it as a matter of personal responsibility. But let me talk a little bit more about problems with the word accident because I think this is important. So studies show us that when we think about accidents, we don't think about them necessarily in regards to their dictionary definition of randomness, preventability. But we think about intention when we think about accidents. And I think this is because we're obsessed with blame and fault. Now, is that just American culture or is it a means of self-preservation of not wanting to be blamed for anything? I can't tell you that. But what's happening by definition, when we say it was an accident, we're not saying it was random. We're saying it wasn't my fault. It wasn't their fault. And in doing that, we're almost always focusing on the wrong thing and setting up the same accident to happen again. Because fault and blame and even absolution, you know, of saying it wasn't their fault, it was an accident, has nothing to do with the problem of accidental death and injury. Accidental death is a matter of dangerous conditions. So if you're talking about bad people and good people, who's wrong and who's right, you're barking up the wrong tree. And so when we see these class and racialized differences in certain types of accidental death, then we're seeing this 
kind of setup for maybe blaming people who are already stigmatized, blaming people already facing impossible conditions for the conditions they're facing that they're not surviving. Can you provide some examples of what you mean? Why are Black and Indigenous people more likely to die by accident than white Americans? And what are some of those things that we think of as quote unquote accidental deaths? When we talk about accidental death, what we're talking about is unintentional injury-related death. So not violence and not disease. And this is a huge swath of ways that people die from choking to falls to drowning to traffic crashes to fires to poisoning to drug overdoses. I mean, it is a massive category. It includes much more obscure and unlikely ways to die, like freezing to death or starving to death, which of course still do happen. Um, These are all considered accidents. And so one thing that we see is not these racialized and economic differences in accidental death. They're not universal. They appear especially in these policy and infrastructure-related deaths. For example, we pretty much all choke to death across states and racial lines, different local economies. It's pretty universal, the same rate of choking-related death. But indigenous people are more than twice as likely as white people to be killed by a car crossing the street. Black people are more than twice as likely to die in an accidental house fire than white people. And so what we're seeing there is the difference between, there's not a lot of conditional exposure of choking. It's simply how we chew, right? Um, But there's quite a bit of conditional exposure in whether or not a house fire is deadly whether or not a traffic crash is deadly. And it has to do with these different layers of exposure, you know? And I think it's important that layered causality is really important point to make that you're more likely to die in a traffic crash if you're driving an old car. You're also more likely to die in a traffic crash if someone else is driving a much bigger car than you. Or if you live in a low-income neighborhood where they're not repairing the roads. And so if you're in a scenario where all three of those factors are interacting, and maybe there are other factors too, like your local hospital recently closed, which means you're further away from emergency medical services. All of these layers contribute to whether or not we survive our mistakes. And certain people have less opportunities to survive their mistakes. Can you explain the Swiss cheese analogy that you use throughout the book and how that applies here? Yes, yes. Uh, I want everyone to bear with me because it's a little hard to understand. But what we should do when we think about accidents is think about safety and danger as a matter of risk exposure. COVID is actually a helpful example here because we've all become experts in the past two years you're less likely to be exposed to COVID if you never leave the house. If you do leave the house and you wear a mask, you're a little less likely to be exposed than someone who isn't wearing a mask. So that mask is a little like the Swiss cheese theory, which was a model developed by James Reason to start to explain large accidental disasters like the Exxon Valdez or the Three Mile Island meltdown. And essentially what he did was to tell people to picture a stack of Swiss cheese Each layer of cheese is a safety system, something that protects us. And each hole in the Swiss cheese is a way that that safety system might fail. And so his theory was that with these big accidental disasters, there's a lot of safety systems in place. And there's a lot of holes in those safety systems. But because the holes in Swiss cheese are random, the holes don't always line up. Ideally, you know, one safety system fails, And the trajectory of disaster gets stopped by the next slice of Swiss cheese where the holes don't line up. But sometimes all the holes line up. And that leads to these giant accidental disasters. What I wanted to do in the book was to ask people to think outside the walls of the nuclear power plant or the oil rig, these big, big systems, and to think about how social systems might be a layer of Swiss cheese for one person or a hole in the Swiss cheese for the next. If you're rich, your wealth might be a layer of Swiss cheese protecting you from accidental harm. And if you're poor, it might be a hole in your Swiss cheese, making it more likely that your mistakes are not survivable. So a helpful way to think about this is that there was a fire, actually, that we can talk about, a horrible fire in the Bronx in New York City, where I live, a few weeks ago. And after the fire, the mayor and the fire commissioner got on TV and they said this fire was caused by a space heater. 
And it was caused because the residents of this apartment building didn't close their door while they were running for their lives. And there was a lot of victim blaming in that um, and not a lot of questions. But what that provides us with is kind of an understanding of how safety systems fail or protect us. So in the case of this fire in the Bronx, the fact that there was the need for a space heater is a hole in the safety system because space heaters are less safe than your heat functioning properly, as is legally required in New York City. And so another hole in the safety system was that the government wasn't regulating these landlords to make sure they were properly heating the building. In that fire, you know, the alarms weren't working. The self-closing doors weren't working. There were no sprinklers. So that's another three safety systems that failed, that led to a significant death toll in this apartment fire. Those physical safety systems are kind of the James Reason analysis, the original Swiss cheese model. And what I want to ask people to do is to think a little larger than that and say, what other safety systems are in play here? This was a predominantly immigrant Black housing. Why were those people living in such an unsafe apartment building? In that way, poverty and immigration status was a hole in the Swiss cheese. New York City's in a housing crisis. So low-income housing is incredibly hard to come by. And so if you're in a situation where you can't afford to buy your way into a safe apartment, then you have a hole in your Swiss cheese because the social safety net isn't supporting you. So Essentially, the Swiss cheese model is a way of looking at the layered, complicated causality that leads to accidents. And it's a really helpful way to counteract this urge to look at the last person who made a mistake, to boil the whole complicated world down to a single kernel of blame. Because with the Swiss cheese model, we can see how dangerous conditions stack up. And if we're willing to look at it broadly, we can also see how conditions can be social systems as well as physical systems, can be your race and your economic status, as well as whether or not the government is enforcing housing laws against your landlord. So I think if I understand correctly, you're saying that racial inequality and economic inequality can intersect to make some people more vulnerable to accidents than others. But I wanted to ask you about the second part you said, which is about the government and what role it can play. And I, I want to ask, what is the role of the government in these accidental deaths and also corporations as well? Because we know that sometimes a lack of corporate accountability plays a huge role in who dies by accident and who doesn't. So if you continue to look at this example of the Bronx fire, you're in a situation where you have a negligent corporate landlord who is not complying with the law to heat buildings to a certain degree, to have working self-closing doors that protect a fire in one apartment from being in an entire apartment building. And you also have a negligent government that is failing to enforce those laws and regulations so the landlord has no reason to comply. And so we see throughout history this kind of duality where corporations have a huge amount of control where whether or not we live or die by accident in the vast majority of ways that we're exposed to unintentional injury death. And the only way that we've ever had any success in forcing corporations to keep them safe is with government enforcement and regulation. And we've gotten to a point where our federal regulatory agencies are so captured that there's not any reason for these corporations to protect us. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing since the early 90s, a skyrocketing rate of accidental death. You can trace this across history. Income inequality tracks with accidental death from the Industrial Revolution to today. But after World War II, the U.S. built out its social safety net and built out its systems of regulation. And I think that's an important two-part system. People were protected by regulations. The government made safety rules that it forced corporations to comply with that prevented us from dying. And that's everything from banning DDT to requiring seatbelts in cars. But also by building out the social safety net, people could afford to protect themselves. They didn't need to take the most dangerous job. They could buy a safer new car. They could live in a safer place. And with those two factors, with the system of regulations and the social safety net, accidental death falls for decades. But it's been rising since 1992. And it's, in my opinion, a direct after effect of 
President Reagan defanging our regulatory agencies and dismantling our social safety net. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, there was a man named Eric Ng who features prominently in Jesse Singer's book. Who was Eric? And why is this story so important? This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Jesse, I want to switch gears a little bit. Can you tell me who was Eric Ng? Eric Ng was my best friend. He was killed in 2006 when he was 22 years old. He rode his bike into Manhattan and was bicycling on a shared bike and pedestrian path that runs adjacent to a highway in Manhattan when he was killed by a driver who accidentally drove onto the bike path. That driver was drunk and he was blamed for my best friend's death and he went to prison. And 11 years later, another driver would rent a truck and intentionally follow the same path entering this bike and pedestrian path and murdering people. He killed eight and severely injured 11 in a vehicular terrorist attack. That drove me to look deeper into Eric's death. And when I looked into it, I learned that others had died. And the drivers were different every time. You know, some were drunk, some were dumb, some were lost. But nothing was done because those were all called accidents. And they were chalked up to this last person who made a mistake. Not the inherently dangerous condition of a bike and pedestrian path next to a highway, which you could drive right onto. And so after the terror attack, the city and state got together and they blocked every single entrance to this path. So a car could no longer enter. They made both the accident and the terrorist attack impossible to happen again. And that was when I realized that accidents were a sort of magic, willful ignorance. And that's when I started to look into the numbers. We see this all the time. When someone is killed in a quote-unquote accident, let's say a car crash, for example, people almost always ask questions like, well, was he in the crosswalk? Was she wearing a helmet? What color clothes were they wearing? Why is it that we feel compelled to do that? And what is wrong with that approach? Questions of blame are really important to us when things get scary. And I think this is especially true with accidents because, as we discussed, they seem random because we're focused on that last person who made a mistake and it just seems like there could have been no other conditions under which that mistake was made. Seemingly random horrors and tragedies are terrifying. And as a result, 
Victim blaming or even perpetrator blaming is a comfort because it's a way of feeling in control of an uncontrollable situation. And I think this is an incredibly strong urge because there are few things more disquieting than not knowing cause. And so in that disquiet, we search for the simplest and quickest and nearest cause. And the simplest and quickest and nearest cause is always the last person who made a mistake. And I think it's important to point out that victim blaming and perpetrator blaming aren't that different. Obviously, one is especially cruel, but both are useless because they don't lead us to preventing the problem. And that's exactly what happened with my best friend's death. He was killed under a dangerous condition that was disregarded because the person who killed him was drunk. And so we sent that person to prison and we did nothing else. And the same thing happened again and again and again. I think it's important to point out that victims are especially blamed, and that's because they're dead or they're hurt. It's because they can't speak up. And it's because when someone is dead or hurt, they're especially the symbol of this thing we want to be as far away from as possible, of this random horror. And so I think the urge to blame victims is a way to say, not me, couldn't have happened to me, I wouldn't have made those decisions because it gives us quite a bit of space from this thing that terrifies us. In the book, you talk about the way that the auto industry sort of created the term jaywalker, for example, or the way that industry tried to blame distracted workers when accidents happened on the job. These tropes of the jaywalker and the accident-prone worker and the nut behind the wheel extraordinarily benefit corporations because they take the corporation out of the equation of prevention. When it comes down to it, even if you're drunk or you're dumb or you're not paying attention, you can work in a place where the machines are safe. You can drive on a safe road. But this narrative kind of lets the government and corporations off the hook from having to protect us. Let's talk about opioid overdoses for a second, because you touch on this in the book, and I think your take on it is really nuanced and interesting. It's obviously a major epidemic in the United States, and there is evidence that a lot of those overdose deaths are unintentional. So when you think about opioids... How do you make sense of the term accidental in that context? And who is responsible for those deaths? Just like the jaywalker and the nut behind the wheel and the accident-prone worker, there is another trope that blames the victim in accidental overdoses, the criminal addict. But it's important to note that the tone changes a little there. And when we talk about the overdose crisis and addiction, we're talking with a lot more blame than we are when we're talking about people dying in traffic crashes or people dying on the job. It's actually a group of people that I found in my experience, we want to grant the term accident to even less, even though the vast majority of overdoses are accidents. Uh, researchers, I think, found that at most 4% of accidental overdoses may be suicidal. So we're talking about the vast majority of accidental drug poisonings being accidents. But there's a different element that comes in here. It's not just blame for things going wrong to separate ourselves from the horror, but a stigmatized blame. A blame that says, you're not just a person who made a mistake. In fact, you might not have made a mistake. You're a person who should be separate from society. And so the way we stigmatize drug use makes blame easier and more likely because it takes those comforting blame tendencies and extrapolates them out to our existing biases. And so these problems, these accident-prone dangerous conditions, such as addictive drugs marketed as non-addictive, such as a lack of access to healthcare, such as a lack of access to overdose arresting drugs like naloxone, those things are even less likely to be addressed than the dangerous conditions we may face on the road or on the workplace, because we're more likely to tell a story of deservedness for that death, that that person is somehow responsible in a way that really separates us, not just from that momentary mistake, but from their very humanity. And I think that's why we've seen the opioid epidemic go on for so long with such a high rate of fatalities. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths before the government even enacted the first piece of legislation in response to the opioid epidemic. I think 2016 
the opioid epidemic really started to pick up in 98, 99. 2016 was the first time the federal government passed a major piece of legislation to fund treatment. Yeah, I want to ask you about the role that stigma plays and how we talk about these kinds of deaths a bit more, because I think it's a really important point. In other words, does stigma affect whose death we consider to be, quote unquote, just an accident, as opposed to something that was preventable and should be preventable? I think accident is a really tricky word in that sense, because in some ways it's a gift we give to some people, right? It's a way we say, it's okay, it was an accident. It's a way of granting forgiveness. But it's also a way that we, on the larger scale, disregard a large group of fatalities. In my research, I found there were a lot of people who had suffered from an accident that was imposed by some outside force, you know, say a parent who lost a child to a driver who are strongly opposed to the word accident. But when I spoke to people who use drugs and people who advocate for used drugs, they defended the word accident because for people who were so blamed and so stigmatized, people who were the only ones involved in the thing that went wrong, it offered some absolution. With regard to traffic fatalities, we've seen the fatality rates go up pretty dramatically in the last few years. What do you think is going on? Accidental death has layered causes. So there are a lot of things going on here. The size and power of our vehicles has skyrocketed in recent years. We have more SUVs and light trucks on the road than ever, and those SUVs and light trucks are bigger and heavier than ever. We've also seen a total failure from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to regulate the size and safety of those vehicles. And this is occurring at a time while cities are repopulating. And so we're seeing a large rise in traffic fatalities, but a very, very large rise in pedestrian fatalities. So there are more people in cities. There are bigger cars in cities. Those cars are more powerful. At the same time, we've seen a massive decline in infrastructure spending. And so our roads and bridges are in worse shape than ever. And those were the conditions for the past decade of rise in traffic fatalities. Now that rise has accelerated in the pandemic. And the reason for that is that our roads are built for speed and speed alone. There is no safety in the construction and design of our roads. And so when these roads built to move as many cars as possible, as fast as possible, emptied in the pandemic, drivers were cued to drive even faster. The road was designed to cue them to drive faster, and they did. And so we saw a large increase in speed-related fatalities. And I think it's important to note here, at the same time that traffic fatalities have been rising in the U.S., they've been declining in Europe and Japan. Are, are Europeans and Japanese people more responsible? Are they better drivers? No, no, they're exposed to different conditions. And our cars are more dangerous and our roads are more dangerous. But there's even a more specific way to think about that. Picture two speeding drivers on one of these roads built for speed. One is wealthy and they've paid $10,000 extra to get automatic emergency brakes in their car. And the other is poor and is driving a 10-year-old car. Is one of those drivers more responsible or a better driver? No, no, no. They face different conditions. And one is more likely to die in that speed-related crash. And the other is more likely to live. And so one is an accident that we're going to count. We're going to add it to this toll of the rise in traffic fatalities, which gets us to kind of this narrative we've heard a lot in the pandemic, that there are angry and pandemic-weary drivers causing the rise in traffic fatalities. And I, I truly hate this line of reasoning. It's not only dumb, it's totally made up. We cannot measure driver anger or driver wariness. It's also a questionable conclusion because traffic fatalities have been rising for more than a decade and all of Europe and all of Japan, which had the same pandemic, have not seen a rise in traffic fatalities, but a decline. But even if driver anger or driver wariness were a trackable metric, like measurable on some magic driver anger index, I'd still question why we were psychoanalyzing drivers, because it's a wholly unactionable way of looking at the problem. Even if you decide all the drivers are angry, what are you going to do about it? We're not going to get everyone therapy. And I think this is the point. By making the problem focused on human error, it appears unactionable or only actionable by police enforcement. There's no systemic change to be made. 
And so like the system of our roads and how we regulate our cars is fine in this narrative and people are the problem. Okay, I hear you on all of that, but this is the part where I struggle a little bit, I admit, because when I'm in my community and I live in D.C. and I'm, let's say I'm walking or biking or even driving my car, I see drivers completely absorbed on their cell phone. I see people running stop lights and stop signs all the time. It's hard for me, I admit. Like, sometimes I do get frustrated with the behavior of individual drivers. Why is that not productive in this case? It's totally reasonable to get frustrated with all of the ways that other human beings might be self-absorbed or annoying or dangerous or reckless. If we look in terms of solution, it is at best unactionable, at worst, a very roundabout way to solving the problem. I can use my own example. The person who killed my best friend was reckless. He made bad decisions, got drunk, and got behind the wheel, right? And he went to prison. You know, we punished him. And that did nothing to solve the problem. And, and I don't just mean in the infrastructure of the road that was failed to be fixed. I mean, how would his arrest extrapolate out? I mean, what do we imagine happening there? Someone who was thinking about drunk driving that day is going to read about it in the newspaper and be like, oh, I better not do it. Someone got arrested for that. It's just an incredibly roundabout way to solving the problem when we have systemic solutions. So like you're talking about reckless drivers and distracted drivers. Technology exists and has existed for some time that completely prevents people in cars from completing the behaviors they're talking about. Speed governors, phone blockers, all this technology exists, but car companies don't want to pay for it and the government's too cowardly to regulate it. And so that one driver who makes you mad because they're being reckless, I think your anger comforts you because it says, oh, they scared me and they're a bad person and, and I'm separate from them. But it also focuses on just that one driver. And even if we pulled over that one driver and handed them 100 tickets, it's not a one driver problem. I mean, you know, that's not the only distracted driver out there. And I think an important thing to note here is that these enforcement-based solutions don't work. There was a massive study of, I think, 12 years of traffic stops in 33 states. And they could find no correlation between traffic fatalities and police traffic stops. None. And one easy way to think about that is, I don't know if you drive or walk or ride a bike, but any of those transportation options are fine. If you think about how many laws you break on any given you know, transportation plan from one place to another, whether that's speeding and running red lights or you know, jaywalking, if you think about all those instances, there's no way a police officer would catch you doing them all. If you speed five days of the week and you get caught one, you think, oh, I had bad luck one day and good luck four days. And that proves to you you should keep completing the behavior. And so we're talking about these hyper-individualistic, specific solutions that focus in on the last person who made a mistake rather than making safety systemic and applicable to everyone, regardless of how we feel about their behavior. Okay, so just in the traffic, context. Let's talk a little bit more. If enforcement is not going to fix the problem, what would fix the problem? It's very similar to the solution that we need to take holistically. On our roads, we need to regulate and redesign our vehicles for safety first, not for styling or sales. And we need to fund the redesign of our roads for safety first, not speed or efficiency. If we care about ending the traffic fatality epidemic. I don't know if we do care about that, but we could practically eliminate traffic fatalities if we installed simple existing technology like automatic emergency braking, alcohol driver detection systems, speed governors in vehicles. And if we made our roads traffic calmed so that drivers didn't feel safe being reckless. It's not the eight-lane highway. It's the two-lane road that feels really quite narrow, so you're going to slow down because it doesn't feel safe to you to go faster. I mean, this isn't magic. 
take one last short break. But when we're back, the number of preventable accidental deaths is huge, and the numbers are rising. Jesse Singer, though, is hopeful, and she has some solutions in mind. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments, a wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. end the book noting that climate change is going to make some of the rates of accidental death, especially environmental deaths due to exposure to the elements, go up in the coming years. And as you know, we're living through a pandemic. We're living through a time of war. It's a tough few years to be a person who follows the news with any sort of regularity. So what kind of challenge does empathy fatigue pose when getting people to rethink how we think about accidents? I actually love this question because I think one of the most heartening things about writing this book was learning about the 100-year history of injury-related death science. That there had been pioneers throughout history discovering simply how we were hurt by accident, how our fragile human bodies came into contact with powerful energy and it killed us, and coming up with ways to not stop us from making mistakes, but to put a pillow between us and our mistakes. What I'm trying to say is that accidents are simple. This is not cancer. This is not COVID. We know how to solve these problems. And there are a million ways to do it. And that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, there are some big picture solutions here, sure. But there are also a million ways that we can be moving this problem forward by trying to protect people in in simple ways. This is a good little example to bring up. The airbag and naloxone. So the airbag and naloxone are the exact same thing, in my opinion. Neither prevents us from making mistakes. You can still crash your car. You can still take too many drugs. But they do prevent accidental death. They prevent the harm of our mistakes. Airbags were invented in 1968. They weren't mandated in every car until 1998. Naloxone was invented in 1961, and it's still not mandated with every opioid prescription, even though opioid prescriptions have a high rate of accidental overdose in children and adults, and it completely and harmlessly arrests those overdoses. It's not harmful to a child. You won't be harmed if you accidentally take it, but it saves your life in case of an accidental overdose. It is also notably incredibly difficult to get in this country. It can cost hundreds of dollars. Pharmacists can refuse to give it to you. 
And people who use drugs who already face so much stigma are forced to jump through hoops to even access this simple, basic drug, which literally protects them from the harm of their mistakes, just like our seatbelts. Why do you think it is that naloxone isn't regulatorily mandated to come with every single opioid prescription out there? Is it the drug companies? Is it the role of stigma that you mentioned that keeps it from being more readily available? It's the role of stigma and it's the role of corporate power. And those two things combine into this characterization of the criminal addict, that people who use drugs are somehow not just people who made mistakes, but bad people. And so there are a million safety technologies that could be preventing accidental death that are not in existence in our lives because of government negligence and corporate power. You know, a great example of this is when the seatbelt was first proposed. Henry Ford Jr. insisted that they were both technically unfeasible and so bad for his bottom line that he would need to shut down. In those same years, car companies had patented the collapsible steering column, but weren't even using it they fought airbags tooth and nail. And so those are simple safety devices that could have saved lives, that corporations resisted and were rather successful at doing so. And so you take that narrative and you combine it with the stigma of drug users. You know, everyone drives a car, but everyone doesn't use drugs. And you get this disregard for simple solutions like naloxone distribution that allows people to die overdose deaths every minute of the day when they could simply survive if we gave them this really basic tool. But I don't think we care about them surviving. I, I mean, I think that's the only, only message to come out of this. If we have naloxone, if this exists and has existed for decades and we don't have it in every household in America, the only answer can be that we don't care, that we think those people should die. Jesse, I know the whole point of your book is that we focus too much on individual responsibility and not on these larger systemic changes that need to be made. But for those of us who don't want to feel completely helpless, <laughs> what can we do as individuals, whether it's changes in how we think about these quote-unquote accidental deaths or policies that we could push the government for that could make a difference? Absolutely. And, and again, like I said, there is so much you can do here because when it comes down to it, there's no problem that we need to figure out. This is not a question of research. Accidental death is simple. And there are so many ways that we can throw a pillow between us and our mistakes. In terms of the big picture, the federal government, we should be pushing for the refunding and the reviving of our regulatory agencies to rein in corporate power and to put a cost on accidental death. Every time someone dies on a corporation's watch, whether in an unsafe car on the roads or in an unsafe workplace, there should be a major cost that makes it no longer feasible for them to continue. We should also be advocating on the federal level to rebuild the social safety net so people don't have to make bad decisions, so they can pay money to protect themselves, to drive a safer car, to not take the most dangerous job or live in the least safe place. But there's also so much you can do locally. There are a million ways to prevent accidental death. In your neighborhood, you can advocate for traffic calming and public transit expansions because if you don't have to drive a car, you are much safer. If you're able to take a bus or a train, that makes you more likely to survive your trip from A to B. You can advocate for safe injection sites and the free distribution of naloxone and syringes. And those simple things simply making them accessible without stigma will not only prevent accidental overdose, but it'll prevent the accidental transmission of diseases. You can fight for, in your home and in your office, ADA accessibility, like ramps and grab bars. So an accidental fall is less likely to end in death. And this even extends to much less common causes of accidental death. Fighting for fire safety requirements like sprinklers and self-closing doors in apartment buildings in the city you live in means that when someone makes the mistake of lighting something on fire, it's less likely to kill people. Fighting for your neighborhood to open a lifeguarded pool means that children will be less likely to die in your neighborhood because when they're hot, they're less likely to go swim in an unlifeguarded river. And so as long as we can stop focusing on the last thing that went wrong and the last person who made a mistake... As long as we can accept that mistakes are inevitable, but premature death is not, we can do so much to protect each other. Your friend Eric used to sign off on letters with 
love and rage. What does love and rage mean to you in this context? Love and rage means that we're not going to do this without a fight. And it's going to take our rage to fight for these things. But that the love is just as important. I really liked this concept of love and rage. And to me, I I mean, what it evoked for me was this notion that, you know, you have to really care about your neighbors, the people in your community, the people in the larger world. And you have to be angry enough about these deaths that we think of as accidental. You know, you have to have some love and you have to have some rage in order to shift the thinking about accidental death and to demand better. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that we are demanding better, but we are also leading with empathy. Because otherwise we end up in this cycle where we're calling for more police enforcement and more punishment and more blame. And we're, we're chasing that one driver who pissed us off on our way to work. And that's not going to solve problems, which is why we have to kind of lead with a certain level of love of our neighbors at large, of this idea that we, we all do deserve to survive. We deserve to have access to the resources that we need to survive. Jesse, thank you so much for speaking with me. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.